You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 25th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. This is the 10th part in our series on climate science. Those who have listened to the previous nine episodes, which I hope is all of you, will be well aware of my main complaints about the existing set of climate scenarios included within the IPCC fifth assessment, the most recent compilation of climate and energy technology models from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The main complaint is that none of these models contemplate a future in which energy demand is significantly lower than it is today. But that seems highly possible, or even likely to me, because we've been improving the efficiency of everything for decades, stopping thermal leaks and learning how to generally do more with less energy in any number of ways, including behavioral ones, and we're very likely to continue doing so under existing policies in order to achieve our climate goals. So why don't our models of future energy supply and demand recognize that possibility? And, of course, my next complaint will also be familiar, and that is that many of the scenarios which do result in global warming staying below the 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius targets rely almost exclusively on carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS technologies, which as of yet do not exist at any important commercial scale and which could not exist in the absence of a fairly robust and binding price on carbon. In other words, they assume a set of solutions, particularly ones featuring direct capture of carbon from the air, which currently do not exist, and they assume that we're going to deploy them very soon at a very large scale. In general, I concluded none of the existing models really represented what a successful energy transition might look like, even though we have a vigorous energy transition already underway, and instead, they relied on very outdated assumptions, like the one that sees an explosion of coal consumption this century to make up for the depletion of oil and gas, as represented in the widely cited RCP 8.5 scenario. So I was very interested to discover a new paper in the journal Nature Energy which discussed a scenario that would keep warming below the 1.5 C degree target without negative emissions technologies. It does so by detailing and quantifying numerous pathways that could lead the world toward much lower total primary energy consumption. In fact, roughly 40% lower in 2050 than our current level of energy consumption. Could this be the model I've been searching for, which represents what a successful energy transition might look like? Well, as you might expect, the answer was sort of. This new model definitely takes into account a number of decarbonization and efficiency pathways that are already a part of the energy transition, and it doesn't rely on some magical explosion of affordable CCS systems. And unlike some other recent models that might also lead to staying below the warming targets, it focuses heavily on the demand side, quantifying the impact of behavioral changes and different ways of providing services, rather than simply focusing on consuming energy. In Amory Levin's classic framing, providing not energy, but hot showers and cold beer. 
But that doesn't mean that actually following these pathways, as outlined in this model, will be easy, or that getting to a lower energy future is predestined. In fact, some of the behavioral changes that would be needed might be as difficult from a political economy standpoint as, say, implementing a carbon tax. Even so, I felt this model was important enough to warrant a deep energy transition show dive, particularly because it diverges sharply from the other climate scenarios considered by the IPCC up to this point. So I reached out to one of the co-authors to explain it, and that is our guest today. Charlie Wilson is a researcher at the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research and an associate professor in energy and climate change at the University of East Anglia in the UK. His expertise on consumer adoption of technology, behavior, and policy as they relate to energy and climate change mitigation gives him a unique perspective on this research that I found very illuminating and thought-provoking. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about the remarkable new procurement plan from Excel Energy. We'll note some of the damage already done by Trump's new tariffs on imported solar panels. We'll summarize a new report showing that it can now be cheaper to procure portfolios of clean energy technologies than to build new gas plants. We'll note the latest chapter in the ongoing debacle of the VC Summer Nuclear Plant in South Carolina. And we'll have a look at a massive new utility-scale battery system proposed in California. But first, our conversation with Charlie Wilson, recorded June 27th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Charlie, to the Energy Transition Show. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. So you and your 20 co-authors have published a new paper in the journal Nature Energy, which presents, as the title says, quote, a low energy demand scenario for meeting the 1.5 degree C target and sustainable development goals without negative emissions technologies. Now, listeners to this show are certainly aware of why this paper caught my eye, because it aims to show both how to stay under the 1.5 degree C target for global warming and because it doesn't rely on carbon capture and sequestration or CCS technologies to get there. Now, we've already discussed why CCS doesn't really exist commercially at any important scale and why I think it will continue to be challenged to become a commercial success, particularly in our discussion with Glenn Peters in episode 57. But why don't you tell us why you and your co-authors wanted to present a scenario that keeps us under the 1.5 degree C limit without using CCS? So much of the scenario and modeling analysis of how to meet the 1.5 degree C target has been well, we thought as the author team strongly biased towards supply side measures. In other words, kind of decarbonizing the energy supply upstream, getting fossil fuels out of the energy resource mix that we put into the global energy system. And that this analysis, as well as focusing very strongly on the supply side, also makes certain sort of basic assumptions about energy demand, which is basically that if you're growing the economy, which almost all the scenarios do, and you're growing the population, which almost all the scenarios do, then you're going to grow energy demand, which is what almost all the scenarios do. And of course, there's historical evidence to show this relationship between demand and the economy and population. But we felt that uh, much of the analysis was, if you like, removing it from the table of what we could look at in terms of deep decarbonization. And I should say as well, this kind of supply side bias is a fairly well-known issues with modeling because most of the modeling tools that are used in this kind of analysis tend to have a very, very detailed representation of the energy supply, you know, lots and lots of technological detail, but they don't really capture energy demand in anything like the equivalent resolution. True. So we wanted to show in our work that by emphasizing energy demand, energy users, energy services, you can generate really useful and new insights on climate change mitigation and the one and a half degree C target. So that's the sort of the broad picture of why we wanted to look at a one and a half degree C scenario without 
really emphasizing decarbonization of the energy supply, including CCS. But specifically with CCS, we also wanted to examine whether you could reach one and a half degrees without relying both on fossil CCS and on bioenergy CCS. So fossil CCS has been around for a long while. It's been used in the, particularly in the oil and gas industry for enhanced oil recovery. And it's used in scenarios and models of one and a half degrees C warming in a way which essentially allows fossil fuels to remain dominant in the global energy mix. And alongside that dominance in the global energy mix is also the kind of continued incumbency or dominance of the fossil fuel companies, the fossil fuel interests, the fossil fuel supply chains, fossil fuel infrastructure, and so on. So to that extent, there's an extent to which CCS and its inclusion in all these scenarios and modeling analysis of one and a half degrees is kind of an upstream technological fix to allow a fairly continuous type system. Whereas I think for one and a half degrees C, we really need to emphasize much wider systemic change with a much kind of wider array of factors. And then we have specific reasons why we wanted to exclude bioenergy with CCS. I know you've covered this in other podcasts. Would you like me just to briefly summarize? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So bioenergy CCS is a negative emission technology, as I'm sure your listeners will be aware. And it's become very, very central to one and a half degrees C modeling in the kind of global integrated assessment modeling community right. because it obviously allows sort of a later peak and decline in emissions because you're kind of gaining these negative emissions usually in the second half of the 21st century. But this is deeply, deeply problematic for many reasons. The bioenergy in CCS is unproven commercially at any significant scale. There are significant risks for food security and environmental liabilities if you start converting biodiverse or agricultural land to monocultural energy crops. Um, the lead times for scaling up bioenergy in CCS in pretty much all the one and a half degree C scenarios as we see them are very unrealistic. They require an incredibly rapid movement from the demonstration phase where the technologies currently are to a very, very rapid scale up phase. And in some cases, you know, you're talking about three quarters of the entire global energy mix by the end of the century being from bioenergy and CCS. So this is an enormous new carbon capture and storage infrastructure, which would also need to be built. So for all of these reasons, CCS, both bioenergy and fossil, is problematic. And so as well as trying to show how focusing on energy demand and energy services was so important, we also wanted to show how this could help kind of move the conversation away from CCS in a way which is kind of increasingly unproductive and onto a broad set of measures and approaches which we can use and which are available around us today. Right. I love that. Thank you for that good little recap of the reasoning. You know, I think it is really interesting that one of your main reasons here was to deliberately target getting the fossil fuels out of the system rather than just decarbonizing them. And that's, oddly enough, not an argumentative direction that I've really taken on this <laughs> podcast previously, which is kind of weird because it is the energy transition show, you know, you'd think. That would be. <laughs> that's a really important point. Well, there's two sort of aspects to it. The one that I mentioned is the broader kind of societal one, which is if you're talking about, for one and a half degrees C, even for two degrees C, you're talking about a an absolutely fundamental systemic transition in the way we produce, deliver, convert, and use energy. So focusing the scenario and modeling analysis on just the one bit of it, the upstream bit, you know, which energy resources we use and how we convert them into electricity or whatever, just focusing on that is only a part of the picture. If you focus on that as a sort of technical solution, so you say, okay, we can keep using all these fossil fuels, we just have this CCS infrastructure that we build on top, you're kind of leaving the rest of the 
what we call the socio-technical system, this sort of entwined set of, of things to do with people and things to do with hardware. You're leaving the whole rest of that as is. And we don't think that's consistent with the level of transformation needed for one and a half degrees C. There's also a narrower technical point, which is that fossil CCS doesn't capture all of the CO2. And so the kind of residual or fugitive emissions from fossil CCS plants is already too many to try and remain consistent with the one and a half degrees C target. And so that's, if you like, another technical reason for trying to see whether one and a half degrees C is possible without fossil CCS. Yeah, and those are both excellent points. And we're going to talk in much more detail in a bit here about the, you know, specifics of the demand side transitions that you're looking at. But before we go there, I really just want to focus in on this target of your modeling, this, you know, keeping things below the 1.5 degree C target. I mean, there's been a handful of other recent models and papers suggesting how we might try to do that without using CCS. And in fact, in the show notes, I'm going to link to a very good recent article by Dave Roberts, which discusses a couple of them, and I'll link to those as well. So how would you describe the main difference between your approach and that that some of these other studies have taken? So I'm familiar with the other studies that you mentioned, and I really, really like the Dave Roberts piece. I'm a fan of his work, and he does a characteristically both perceptive, but also very kind of punchy summary of what the one and a half degree C literature says. He does indeed. He makes the points that all the studies kind of agree that you've got a one and a half degree C future, which is much more energy efficient, which is strongly dominated by renewables, which is a strong electrification of end use. In other words, not just in kind of consumer goods, but also in things like mobility and heating and cooling. And obviously all of the studies that he looked at also rely on CCS, both fossil CCS and then some usually residual bioenergy in CCS. So I would say there's four main ways in which our scenario differs. And for those of you listeners who haven't looked at our paper, our scenario is called LED or low energy demand. And obviously the kind of pun, if you like, on LED light bulbs is deliberate as a kind of quintessential low energy technology. But our LED scenario differs from other one and a half degree C work in four ways. So firstly, we've already talked about that we don't just exclude bioenergy and CCS, we also exclude fossil CCS. And as far as I'm aware, all of the other studies that you mentioned include some CCS in their energy mix in the future. Secondly, we do certainly focus on technological efficiency improvements, so improving the efficiency of devices, appliances, vehicles, and so forth. But crucially, a distinction with our scenario is we focus a lot on energy service efficiency, so not just the technical efficiency with which energy is converted from one form to another, but actually the useful service that that energy conversion chain, if you like, provides us with. Like, why is it? We don't particularly like owning light bulbs. We like lighting. And, you know, this is probably more controversial, but we're not necessarily interested in owning a car. We want the mobility that that car provides us with. So we look at ways in which that service or that activity can be provided with more efficiency. And I think we'll come back to this later in the interview as well. The third thing where our scenario differs is which we place a lot of emphasis in, first of all, developing a coherent storyline about future change. And It's important for those of your listeners not familiar with scenario work in a scientific context is that really at its heart, a scenario is a story. But to be scientifically robust, it needs to be a coherent and consistent story based on a clear set of assumptions. And so we start by thinking about, well, what are the changes which we can observe today that will reshape the way energy services are provided? So we looked at 10 in particular, which I can discuss if that would be of interest. But we place a lot of emphasis on character 
characterizing this story about what the future may look like and then deriving our modeling assumptions from that story. By contrast, if you look at, for example, the Van Vuren paper in Nature Climate Change, and I'm an enormous fan of Detlev Van Vuren's body of work, but in that paper where he's looking at one and a half degrees C with reduced amounts of bioenergy and CCS, he more kind of adopts a sort of model sensitivity type approach where he sort of says, all right, well, what if we pull this lever by X amount? What impact does that have on emissions and therefore the need for bioenergy and CCS? It's not linked to any kind of compelling storyline about how the future may change. So, for example, and he has one of his scenarios, which he calls lifestyle change, in which the world's consumers eat less meat, use more public transport and reduce the set point temperatures on our thermostats by a degree. So this is called lifestyle change, but there's no real kind of explanation or analysis about where that might come from. Whereas in our case, as I said, we've characterized this detailed scenario storyline with these major drivers of change, which we observe. And the fourth and final difference between our work and what we see in the other one and a half degrees C modeling studies is that we actually did an awful lot of our analysis off model. In other words, we didn't kind of go near the model until we had done all the analysis which we knew we wouldn't be able to do in the model. Now, this links back to the point I made earlier about a lot of the global models that are used to analyze climate change mitigation. They're often not the best tools for analyzing transformations in energy demand. They're extremely good tools for analyzing transformation in energy supply mm. and land use, but they're really not designed well to analyze changes in energy demand or changes in energy services. Right. So we did probably 80% of our analytical work, both in terms of time and brain power, was spent using you know simple spreadsheet tools, little sectoral models, um, little things which we then built up a perspective about what we thought energy demand would do. And then, but only then, we went to a model and said, all right, this is what energy demand is going to be. What uh, is the sort of optimal energy resource mix in terms of renewables and everything else? So that was another, another kind of difference in what we did. That's interesting. You know, I guess I have to wonder what was the reason to do that? What was the benefit of doing these separate sort of off-model calculations? Well, as I said at the beginning, the, the sort of supply side bias in the modeling tools is fairly kind of well recognized in the community. Oh, I see. The, the models the models kind of come out of a tradition where they were looking at how to optimize the energy resource mix or the energy supply mix. And then they right. kind so of- So it's because of the nature of the modeling systems that you were using. Right, right. And I yeah. should have also at this point, I should have probably done this at the beginning, but I should have also acknowledged the, the lead author on this study, Arnulf Grubler, who's worked on technological change, energy demand and modeling for many, many, many years. And it was really, he's got this kind of incredible command of both the sort of historical and empirical and theoretical literatures, but also also the modeling literature and the modeling work. He sort of spans these two fields. And so it was his kind of vision, which we implemented, if you like, as a team of researchers, because he's sort of long been familiar with this tension between the use of these models to explore future energy systems, but also the kind of constraints or inabilities of these models to look at transformations in energy demand. Interesting. And I guess we should probably just mention what is the modeling system? Was it message? I don't yes, remember. correct. So we use the message globium integrated assessment model. So that's essentially right. three coupled models, a detailed model of the energy system, particularly the energy supply. That's message a detailed model of the land use system, that's globium, and then a relatively simple kind of model of the macro economy called macro. And so those three things are coupled together to look at. So essentially what we used it for was we said, okay, we've done loads and loads of work off model to quantify what energy demand will be between 2020 and 2050. 
here are the energy demand that you need to provide for. What energy resources can we use and what land use can we use to provide for this level of energy demands? So that's what we used Message Globium for. And then we fed the output of Message, which is things like emissions from CO2 and non-CO2 gases. We fed those into a climate model, Magic, to look at the warming outcomes. And we fed them into an air pollution and health model called GAINS to look at the health outcomes. But the main, the core kind of systems modeling tool was Message Globium. Gotcha. And for those of our listeners who want a refresher on how all those modeling systems work and how the IMs work with the SSPs and the RCPs and all that fun stuff, you can go back and listen to episode 51, our interview with Bas van Gauven on the uh, climate science part six emissions scenario episode. All right. So let's talk about some of the details here a bit. So the main pathway by which your model brings warming below the 1.5 degree limit is improved efficiency in which global final energy demand drops from around 400 exajoules per year in 2015 to almost half of that, 245 exajoules per year by 2050, which would be lower than any of the scenarios presented in the IPCC fifth assessment report. But the way that you arrived at that projection of efficiency gain seems much more detailed than the typical sort of big chunky wedge that we see of, you know, for efficiency estimates in this, in this domain. How did you arrive at that estimate? Like, how did you get down to 245 exajoules per year by 2050? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. So we actually, you said that our energy demand in 2050 would be lower than any of the scenarios in the IPCC's fifth assessment report. To the best of our knowledge, it's the lowest energy demand scenario for 2050 that's ever been published, including by ones outside the fifth assessment report. In fact, the lowest one we could find in the literature was the Greenpeace scenario, and we're significantly lower than that. So it's, a, it's obviously a super important question. Well, how on earth did you come up with these numbers? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
In early June, Excel Energy Colorado, the largest utility in the state, filed a remarkable procurement plan with state regulators proposing to retire two coal units with a combined 660 megawatts of capacity early and to replace that capacity with 1,100 megawatts of wind, 700 megawatts of solar, and 275 megawatts of storage to be paired with the solar generators. The utility indicated that it intends to use 380 megawatts of existing CAS capacity to ensure reliability on its system. The plan would roughly have the share of coal generation in Excel's portfolio, from around 40% last year to less than a quarter within a decade. In the proposal, Excel told regulators that it, quote, believes that moving forward with a transition to clean energy is preferred. And the new resources are likely to be affordable because a resource solicitation the utility held in January yielded a median price for wind plus storage at just $21 a megawatt hour, or $0.02 a kilowatt hour, and $36 a megawatt hour for solar plus storage, or $0.3.6 per kilowatt hour, both prices being well below a typical floor price for gas generation at around $45 a megawatt hour. Item 2. In the wake of President Trump's decision to impose a tariff on imported solar panels, U.S. renewable energy developers announced that they would cancel or freeze more than $2.5 billion of investment in large projects along with thousands of jobs. That's more than double the rough... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.